In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Listen to my prayer, O God. Do not ignore my plea. Hear me and answer me. Evening, morning, and noon. I cry out in distress, and he hears my voice. Cast your cares on the Lord, and he will sustain you. He will never let the righteous fall. Glory be to, to the, the Father, Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and will be forever. Amen. As we continue our journey through Epiphany and look ahead to next week, our Old Testament lesson for this Sunday will be Deuteronomy chapter 18. And Deuteronomy, as a reminder, is the last of the five books that Moses writes and because it's a collection of sermons that he gives or speeches that he gives at the end of his life, along with reflections on their time that they have had together in the wilderness, we believe that this book is written at the end of Moses' life, probably in about 1406 B.C. That would be assuming that the Exodus happened in 1446 B.C., 40 years later, 1406 B.C., the end of the wilderness wanderings as Israel is on the precipice of crossing the Jordan and going into Israel. Because remember, Moses cannot go into the promised land. And so he's giving these speeches, restating all of these things so that Israel is reminded of how far God has brought them, how he has preserved them, and what his expectations are for them as they enter into the promised land. The name Deuteronomy means the second law or the second word. And so when we look at why it's called Deuteronomy, it's because the book of Deuteronomy is basically a restatement of everything that has been said in Exodus, Leviticus, and in parts of Numbers. Not that it's verbatim of that, but it is a review of the Ten Commandments, a review of the covenants that God has made with the people of Israel, a review of the broad scope of what God has done all designed to remind Israel of who they are, who God is, what God has done for them, and how they should respond to, to God's grace and provision. So, so Deuteronomy was set up to, it was intended to be a summary of the first five books in, in a way, and that's why the Jewish faith probably looks at that as being a very complete set, that they have those five books. Right. And so it is intended to be a summary, not of the first five, because it's not so much a summary of Genesis, but it's a summary of Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers, the time that they're together in the wilderness, reflecting back even into their captivity in Egypt. But he doesn't go all the way back to the beginning of creation. So it's kind of a summary of Moses's ministry is okay. really what it is. And if I'm remembering correctly, it's largely framed around five long speeches that Moses makes over the course of a period of time. But it's, again, set up so that Israel is reminded of all that God has done and what he expects of them as they go into the promised land. And so the section that we hear from today, Deuteronomy 18, comes from one of those speeches that Moses is making. And it's part of his preparation for his departure. Because Moses recognizes that when he goes up onto Mount Nebo and dies, Israel is going to be without a leader for the first time in over 40 years. For them, their identity is built around the fact that Moses is there. 
that Moses has gone up onto the holy mountain and gotten the Ten Commandments from God, that Moses has given them the direction on how to build the tabernacle, how to move through the wilderness, that when they need information from God, Moses is able to go into a tent of meeting, speak directly with God, and then come out, his face glowing with the holiness of God, so much so that he has to be covered with a veil and speak directly on behalf of God to his people. And so there's some, as you can imagine, there would be some apprehension of what happens next. What do we do without Moses? And so what we are hearing today is Moses preparing Israel for his departure and starting to talk about what is going to replace him. How do they find the new spokesman from God? How do they know who that prophet is going to be? But ultimately, and this is, we're going to get to this at the end of, of the text, it's pointing us ahead to today's, or this Sunday's gospel reading, where we're not looking for a new Moses, but a greater Moses, the final prophet who we're going to encounter in Christ himself. And it very much reads like a, a kind of a last will and testament, like this is what's coming, this is how it's going to unfold, this is my, these are my words of wisdom to you. Right, right. And, and you get that, definitely get that sense that Moses knows his time is up. God has told him so. And so he knows that he's fulfilling the final parts of his responsibility of making sure that those he's leaving behind will be ready to continue in his absence. And so what you read for us, please, uh, Deuteronomy chapter 18, verses 15 through 20. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen, just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly when you said, let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God or see this great fire any more lest I die. And the Lord said to me, They are right in what they have spoken. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And whoever will not listen to my words that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. But the prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name that I have not commanded him to speak, or who speaks in the name of other gods, that same prophet shall die. So when we're looking for a replacement to Moses, Moses is giving some direction here. And contextually, it's really quite important. The verses that came right before this acknowledge the temptation that's going to be placed in front of Israel. The promised land that they're moving into is not empty, vacant land. There are people already living there. But the people who are living there are very much enamored with all kinds of idol worship and false gods and interacting with the dead. And so at the first part of this chapter, he promises that the Levites will continue to do their work as priests and then he warns about the temptation they'll face in verses 9 through 14. And he talks about that the people of the land have abominable practices. They burn their sons and daughters and offerings to idols. They practice divination, tell fortunes, interpret omens, 
service sorcerers, charmers, mediums, necromancers, and people who inquire of the dead. That's all of what they're going to encounter as they move into the promised land. God will not allow his people to do this because he does not speak in this way. And so he gives this warning of don't try and do those things. Don't burn your own sons and daughters as offerings to idols. Don't practice divination. Tell fortunes, interpret omens, serve as sorcerers, so on and so forth. Because this is not how God is going to talk to you, and so you will not be talking to God if you do these things. One of the things that, uh, just because I've started to look into a little bit more about the distinctions made in all of these different categories that I thought was interesting, is necromancers and people who inquire of the dead. I thought, that seems like a redundancy there. And so right, right. it just led gonna... me down a little rabbit hole of what's the distinction. So necromancers are people who call upon the memory of the dead and call them by name. But people who inquire of the dead at this time are people who actually collect the skulls of the dead and write on them and draw symbols on the skulls and then interact with the skulls as a way to try and get some kind of wisdom about what they should do. And so that's the distinction between those two. Um, it was just one of those things, I know that it doesn't really pertain to what we're actually studying for this week, but it just struck me as why is that those two categories there when they're somewhat redundant. But there is a distinction. Were there any on that list that caught your attention that you wanted to explore a little bit further? No, but when I looked at that list, it reminded me that, that uh, people haven't changed very much. There's still a thriving business for, for mediums and seances and, and, and communicating with the dead out there in this world. Oh, absolutely. In fact, um, even the burning sons and daughters as offerings to idols, um, in the commentary that I was reading, they cited an article of some African tribes doing that during the most recent drought in the 20 teens, mm. where they went into some remote villages and found people who still do this as a way to try and appease the gods and bring the droughts to an end. And so, um, and sometimes we look at that and think, I can't imagine sacrificing my son or daughter so that I could have a better livelihood or something like that. And yet we do hear that kind of conversation about when should you start having children? Well, after you can afford them or after you've become established and once you've completed your education. We still have this idea of children being a hindrance to economic activity or how much they're going to cost and, and, and things like that even within our cultural conversation today. And so you're right, we have not changed all that much. And so the warning of who should you be listening to is as relevant to us today as it was to the people of Israel when they received this. Um, and so it's good for us to hear this, this warning from chapter 18. So if they're not supposed to chase after those types of prophets in the promised land, what are the qualifications that they should be looking for in the prophet who will speak from God. Moses is kind of setting them up to look for, uh, yeah, a, a, a prophet that, like he, is that direct conduit to God, the, the right. one and only God, not confused with the other gods that are out there in the world. Right, and it's one that God himself will raise up. 
So there's almost a little bit of a warning there of if it's somebody who sets themselves up to be prophet that God has not raised up, don't listen to them. It's a prophet like Moses. Well, what is the distinctions of Moses? He's someone that God has appointed. He speaks the word of God directly to the people, and he doesn't add his own thoughts to it. Uh, he speaks God's word, and that is it. Now, we know that God is speaking directly to Moses. And in verse 16, Moses says something interesting, that God will raise up a prophet. Just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly when you said, let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God or see the great fire anymore lest I die. This can take us a bit by surprise because you'd think if you could hear God's voice directly, why wouldn't you want to hear it? And yet, if we think back to what's going on at Mount Horeb, or when God gives the Ten Commandments, the people are terrified because the direct voice of God is terrifying. His voice is holy coming to your unholy ears. And if we go back and we look at that whole event, God's voice is accompanied by thunder and lightning, the blasting of horns, a smoking mountain, a burning bush. It's not a quiet, gentle voice. It's, it's terrifying for God's people. And so he uses this mediator to speak his word, his holy word to unholy people so that they can bear the hearing of what God has to say. They're just not comfortable processing that kind of a, of a communication. It's a lot of stimuli coming right, right, back. Right, right, right. And so I think for that reason, God recognized that and, and understood, okay, well, I will meet you halfway and, and send a prophet. That'll be a little bit easier for you to take. Right, right. It's easier to hear somebody that looks and sounds like you than it is to hear somebody who is wholly other than you. And so by saying this, he's casting, casting out far into the future, there will be this prophet but they probably had no idea how far in the future that would be. Right. If we look at this prophecy as pointing ahead to Christ, they have no idea how long they're going to have to wait. Likely, they're thinking Joshua and Caleb, right. the two men who are going to follow Moses as the leaders of Israel, particularly Joshua, that Joshua is going to be the one who does this. And to a degree, Joshua is going to fulfill this role. He steps into the leadership role that Moses leaves behind. Moses appoints him to be the prophet. God has designated him as being the leader of Israel. He speaks with wisdom. He shares God's word. And so in part, he is fulfilling this, but you're exactly right. Ultimately, it's pointing ahead to Jesus. And the um, gospel text for this Sunday has Jesus going into the synagogue and speaking with authority. And the authority with which he speaks astonishes the people who hear it. And so, is he meeting the qualifications of Moses? Well, yes, he's speaking God's word in clarity and in purity. He is uh, like Moses in that he has been a, um, chosen by God to do this, sent by God to do this, and he is doing it in the midst of God's people. And that makes such a great connection between those two readings. Why, why are they connected? Well, it's because here you have this prophet that's been invested with this authority, and we need to carefully examine, is, is that the case here? Right. And that authority 
is recognizable by the people of God because they, they recognize God's word. But he does give a warning here in verses 19 and 20. Uh, in 19, he war gives a warning to hearers, and in 20, he gives a warning to speakers. So the hearer warning first. And whoever will not listen to my words that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. The require it of him is the being held accountable for what God has done uh, and or what God has said. And so ultimately, it's judgment. It's recognizing that those who hear the word of God, um, well, all people, will be held in judgment for uh, their faith or their lack of faith, the way that they uh, receive God's word. But in verse 20, he now goes to the one who does the speaking. The prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name that I have not commanded him to speak, or who speaks in the names of other gods, that same prophet shall die. Now notice there's a distinction here of two different kinds of false prophets. Those who claim to be sent by God and are not, and then those who are just speaking on behalf of false gods but leading people astray. Both of them have the same consequence. It's death. And that consequence is ultimately the same as the one faced by the hearers who refuse to listen to the word of God, because their judgment will also lead to their death. And this is kind of a parallel, I forget where the passage is located, where it's an admonition to pastors, that woe to the, to the one who leads these astray, that be better that if a millstone were tied around his neck. Right. There is definite warnings about that. And the warning is not just saying something in God's name that's not true or uh, false idols, but it's also altering what God has said. So it's not just claiming to speak for God when you don't hold the office of prophet, but it's if you hold that office and say things that God has not spoken and still use the position, positional authority that you have to claim it to be true, that is as bad as speaking on behalf of a false prophet. And so that warning cuts both directions there, and ultimately it leads to death. And as the people of Israel move into the promised land, that becomes the fate of all of the false prophets who are there and the uh, people who have chased after these false gods is the command that God is giving to Israel is that they should be wiped off the face of the earth, that those people who are there are not given a chance to continue to worship false idols, but are to be removed from the promised land forever in order to protect the purity of God's teaching. So as we look ahead to Sunday, what is the hymn that you've chosen for us to focus on? For this week, I picked up one out of the justification section that uh, it's really the central message of what we're all about. And that being, if, if Christ had not come to save us, uh, everything else would be just irrelevant. It would be, uh, life itself would be without purpose. Mm -hmm. um, and so the hymn we're, we're zeroing in on is number 568, if you have a Lutheran service book. Uh, again, the title, If Your Beloved Son, O God. And this one was uh, written by Johann Hermann. And I think usually I don't, begin by discussing the author of the text, but I think in this case it's really important to understand where he's coming from. He has been given the moniker of being the Silesian Job. Well, what does that mean? Um, Silesia is this area that's now in Poland. It's, it's sort of 
that area between Germany and Poland that kept switching boundaries over and over through the course of history. And that area was particularly hard hit during the Thirty Years' War, which is when he lived, which is the early, early 17th century. Even from the very beginning of his life, um, he was the only one of his siblings that survived to be, to be an adult. Uh, uh, his family situation, he, they were very poor, and through his entire life, he struggled with health issues. So just rough from the, from the very get-go. Uh, but his mother wanted to make sure that he got a good education, and he did. He, and he even served as a tutor to uh, uh, others, to royal families, and eventually was able to study theology and become a pastor. When he finally did become a pastor, the town uh, of Coben that he served was leveled by a fire. Shortly thereafter, his first wife died, and that first wife was, was childless, so he didn't have any children. He remarried, um, but shortly thereafter, the Thirty Years' War descended upon that era, area. So um, there was no peace for this poor man. So I think he very much deserved that title of being the Silesian Job. It's interesting to me how many hymns we have that come out of that Thirty Years' War or the, that era when the plague and the Thirty Years' War was all happening, happening kind of one right on top of another, and how those hymns have stuck with us so long. Well, and I think a lot of great art and a lot of great poetry and, 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 and music sometimes comes out of suffering. It's, um, you know, you could maybe draw the, the corollary with today that we live such a comfortable existence that maybe the, the things that are being generated are just kind of just kind of thin and not they don't have a real depth to them. But but these things that come out of these times of trial and, and real real testing, I think, have that kind of staying power to them. And to think about the tragedy that happens in his life, it's almost impossible for us to comprehend what it would be like to live. We can imagine a house fire that maybe takes out two or three houses. And we would consider that a really bad thing, but to have a whole town leveled by a fire, followed by warfare, followed by the death of, of family. And it's more than what most people are able to comprehend. And what a great thing for us to be protected from that kind of, that kind of tragedy. But it, it's, you can't put yourself into his shoes. And, and yes, and you hope that, yes, that faith that you have will will shore you up and get you through those difficult situations. And that, that definitely bleeds through this, this hymn in, in a number of different ways. Um, one of the things that I didn't uh, mention was that that area where he lived in Silesia, the Austrian king at that time desperately wanted to reconvert it back over to Catholicism. And the easiest thing would have been to just fold and say, okay, fine. Right. Because that was in that era of time, it would probably have been just much easier to say, okay, the prince says we're going to be Catholic, let's just be Catholic and go along with it and, and, and not rile things up. Uh, but he fought against that and uh, to his great peril. And so just an amazing number of challenges to his, his faith and his personal life to just stay positive. And what you find in this hymn is just that anchoring of, of being in the faith and not being shaken by it. 
At this time in the 17th century, it's also interesting to note that you find a shift in the text from those that were much more uh, objective in talking about the faith. And if you compare this, for example, to hymn 555, which is uh, Salvation Unto Us Has Come, it's basically the same message. It talks about how the, the, the message of Christ coming and the, and the grace of God to save us through his son Jesus, um, this is the anchor of our lives. It uses the pronouns uh, all the way through it of we and us, even mm -hmm. in the title. Salvation yeah. to us has come. But if you look at this hymn, it has a clear shift from the plural to the singular. Well, is that bad? Now, there have been, I have heard pastors along the way say that, well, if you can shy away from hymns that are too much about the I and the me, that you're better off, that it's, that's way too personal. And then it's often tied in with the notion of pietism and personal devotion, that too much of that is a bad thing. Well, we know from looking at the poetry of Gerhardt and some of the hymns that came up, um, not at this time, but a little bit later uh, historically, that there's some real value to them in expressing mm -hmm. the hymn for, a devotional, uh, for devotional purposes. And in fact, Hermann's hymn here was written for that. Uh, we often think, well, hymns are always written to be sung in church, corporately, that we're going to sing it all together. His intent was, like, like Luther's, many of Luther's were intended to be sung in a family situation or for personal devotion and, and edification, as was this one. This one being only a hundred years later after the mm -hmm. time of Luther. And so we find that it has that clear shift from a us and we to an I uh, and, and me. And you find that throughout the text. Uh, the translation, we have no idea who did this translation, which is kind of unusual. We have it uh, brought forward into our current hymnal, um, the Lutheran service book, from the Lutheran hymnal, the 1941 Old Red Hymnal, you may remember it as, but no one knows who did the translation. Typically, it would be Catherine Winkworth. She did a lot of those hymns out of the German, but we just uh, brought it forward. The only updates... I should say the minimal updates that have been done with it since that hymnal are the replacing of a lot of these and thys with yous and yours. And so for people who memorized it with the these and the thys, it might be a little bit clunky. But I, I think because a lot of the, the ends of the phrases don't end with these and thys, you can get away with it a little mm -hmm. bit more easily. It doesn't mess up the rhyme scheme. So if we look at... Uh, some of the phrases in the hymn, you can hear that there's also an undertone of living in a very difficult time, a time of war, just by some of the phrases that are chosen. Yes, we're always in a war against sin and temptation, but there's just little phrases in here that I think say, suggest that it's a little bit more than that. If we go to stanza two, um, I find sweet peace and rest. Yes, we're, we're tormented by the devil, but in terms of peace, mm -hmm. you, you maybe don't, that isn't your first choice of words. And it, it comes again for later in that stanza, uh, his words abiding peace in part. So you can tell that he's, he's craving a, a time of peace, which unfortunately he wasn't uh, allowed to enjoy in his lifetime because of that war. Also in stanza two, despair no more reigns o'er me that 
idea that, that despair is some kind of an outside force that's pressing on him, much like an occupying force would be. Mm-hmm. And he uses the word um, oppression later in the hymn, I lost the place for it. But it's this idea that there's some, oh, it's in, yeah, it's later in stanza two there, by, I by sin oppressed. And maybe not your first image of sin, but it's this outside force that's just pressing on you. And just simply the notion of looking for your salvation, that somebody will come and restore peace and quiet to your area. Christ's work is my salvation, that you're hoping that some kind of occupying force or government will be set up so that you have this this salvation. And then in the very last stanza, uh, in faith and hope preserve me, because you realize that that life is in itself very fleeting and that uh, because of the uncertainty of life at that time in that war, that you're just praying for peace and calm and to be preserved in in your faith and trust. Well, let let me um, uh, backtrack a little bit um, and talk about the hymn tune. Uh, The hymn tune is one that's very familiar to us uh, as Lutherans, and in fact, it's mostly just Lutherans that sing it at all anymore. And the reason for that is because it's from that very first collection of hymns that was published in 1524 uh, in in Wittenberg. And it was that small collection of of eight hymns, the first hymnal, so to speak, that that came out. And this hymn was used for several different texts. And no one is certain exactly where it comes from, but it's not unreasonable to believe that Luther himself probably penned it to go uh, you know, with a different text, um, Dear Christians, One and All Rejoice. That's probably the text most people right. know it with. And that's how it was first paired. And so it was. this is a later text for that earlier tune. So why don't we, for today, why don't we sing stanzas one and five? Sounds good. If your beloved Son, O God, had not to earth descended, and in our mortal flesh and blood had not sin's power ended, then this poor wretched soul of mine in hell eternally would pine because of your transgression. My guilt, O Father, you have laid on Christ your Son, my Savior. For Jesus you my debt have paid and gained for me God's favor. O Holy Spirit, fount of grace, The good in me to you I trace, in faith and hope preserve me. That last stanza, by the way, if you look at the notes at the bottom there, is from a different source. And that was not not from Hermann, but it was from a, a close contemporary, and it was just appended onto this one, because it carries a similar theme. Um, Noticeably, out of character maybe is that last, those last two lines in there, the good in me to you I trace in faith and hope preserve me. Um, there's a bit of 
uh, sanctification in there that just doesn't appear in the rest of the hymn. But it, it's a, it makes for a nice, nice closing stanza. Right. It does. It does really serve well as a nice closing stanza for that. Was that part of a larger hymn that we just abandoned the rest of? I can't tell you. I don't know from the notes and research that I did. Um, um, but it wasn't unusual uh, for them to create what's called a, a, a cento, or combining things from different sources to, to make uh, one whole, especially if they're meditations on the same theme. Um, oh, and I forgot to mention that uh, Hermann's starting point for this, this whole hymn was he was reflecting on a meditation, on some meditations um, that were thought to be by Augustine, some from the 11th century that were thought mm. to be a, by Augustine. We now know that they're, they're not, but it doesn't matter. It's, it's still this centrality, this central notion of the faith that, 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 that Christ Christ's, um, coming to earth you know, to rescue us from our sins is what the central tenet of our faith is, is all about. In, in total, he wrote some 400 hymns, so he's a very prolific writer but sometimes using these older sources as his initial inspiration. Do we have others of those 400 that we sing? I did not research that. There's, 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 I'm sure, multiples in the hymnal, but I did not look that up before I prepared for the, the, the podcast today. He is probably the important link between Martin Luther himself in the early 16th century and Johann Gerhardt late later in the, the 17th century. So it's important if, you, if you're looking it up to spell Hermann correctly, H-E-E-R-M-A-N-N. Yes, we do have other hymns from him. We have six in total. Six of them. That, 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 that is in not a surprise. Well, let us pray. O Lord, have mercy upon us. O Christ, have mercy upon us. O Lord, have mercy upon us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Blessed Lord, you've caused all holy scriptures to be written for our learning. Grant that we may so hear them, read, mark, learn, and take them to heart. By the patience and comfort of your holy word, we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life. Through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God now and forever. Amen. Amen. Please join us for worship this weekend. Our worship opportunities are at 8 a.m. and 10.30 a.m. on Sunday, and on Mondays at 6.30 p.m.